If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. It's going to be back towards the back of your Bibles there. Let's see if I can set this here. Well, for roughly the next 10 or 12 sermons that Adam and I get to preach, we're going to be walking verse by verse through the book of First Peter together. You know, just historically, in many areas around the world, really both past and present, where persecution of the church has existed and been prevalent, the book of First Peter has been a very beloved and rich source of comfort and encouragement for Christians. But what about for us today? You know, is First Peter as relevant for us as it is for those Christians who maybe live in a country or culture that's hostile to this gospel? Well, of course, I'm going to argue that yes, it is. First Peter is extremely relevant for us today because it's not only about the hope in the midst of suffering, which is a huge theme throughout. But First Peter is also about how those who have been called and saved by God by the blood of Christ should live in a world that has rejected him. So how do we, in light of the hope of the gospel, submit to and interact with governing authorities? How do we conduct ourselves in the workplace, in our own homes, in our own church? How does the hope of the gospel sustain us in suffering and help us then to live holy lives as God has called us to do? So Peter is going to call our attention over and over again throughout this letter to not dwell on our current circumstances, but to look forward. Look to Christ, what he has accomplished for you. Look to what awaits you. When his glory is revealed. Now, as one commentator put it, if Paul is the apostle of faith and John is the apostle of love, well then Peter is the apostle of hope. And that's what we see. So Peter wants to be sure that our hope is in the right place. You know, I'm sure many of you came in here today with your hope in the wrong place. Maybe it's in a desire to be a better Christian. You know, if you could just do that, then, man, those troubles at work might go away, or that sin that you struggle with, it would go away. You know, maybe it's in, like Jeff said earlier, it's in having a certain physical appearance. You know, maybe you came here this afternoon with a friend or your family, and you're not a Christian. Well, I'm going to ask several times today, then, what is your hope in? Is it in your career? Maybe finding that perfect spouse or having a perfect family, getting all the right degrees, paying that house off, being debt-free. Let me just say from the very beginning that those things, in the end, are going to be hopeless endeavors, and that there is something far better for us to place our hope in. And Peter wants to point you he wants to point all of us to the hope that is imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for you. Not so that in the end you would be a better Christian, 
but rather that you may with joy faithfully endure to the end, keeping your eyes fixed on Christ. And so as we move through our text, we're going to see a few different things as we go through. The first two verses, we have a very general and basic introduction that sets up our audience and our, and our author of the letter. And then getting into verses 3 through 12, Peter is going to give us really the foundation for the entire letter. So in verses 3 through 5, we're going to see that our hope is founded by and rooted in and protected by God. And then in verses 6 through 9, we're going to see the benefit of our hope. Then in verses 10 through 12, we'll see this hope promised and fulfilled in Christ. So again, we're going to see that our hope is founded by, rooted in, and protected by God. That our hope, we're going to see our hope's benefit. And then third, that this hope has been promised by God and fulfilled in Christ. And like I said before, this intro is setting up this entire letter. Peter's going to call these Christians and us to live holy lives, to suffer well, to be united in the church. But none of that, none of that is going to be possible if our hope is anywhere other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Peter is using these first 12 verses to orient us properly. So before we get into the text, I want to give you my sermon in a sentence. Hope in the resurrected Christ and joyfully endure to the revelation of Jesus Christ. So hope in the resurrected Christ and joyfully endure to the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, if you would, let's read our text together. First Peter. I'm going to start there in verse 1 and go all the way through verse 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours 
searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, starting there, then in verse 1, again, we see our, we see our author simply says Peter. This is the name that Christ gave him, which means rock. It says that he is apostle of Jesus Christ. And no other qualifications then are needed. Paul had to give certain qualifications to the Galatians, but not Peter. Great authority came, and not only this name, but the title of apostle. One who has seen and been with Christ. And he has been given authority from Christ to speak on his behalf. So there's great authority just in his addresser. This is Peter. And then next we see who this letter is addressed to. It says that they are elect exiles, meaning they have been chosen by God. And we'll, we're going to see this idea throughout the letter. That they were not saved of their own accord, but they were chosen by God. We're going to note that here that primary audience Peter's writing to is Gentiles. Of course, they're Gentile believers. And this seems clear really from verse 18. It says, you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited you from your forefathers. Well, Peter wouldn't say this about Jewish Christians. That they were ransomed from the futile ways of their forefathers seems to make it clear that these are Gentile Christians. There's also going to be a real emphasis throughout the book that these Gentile believers have now become a part of the household of God. They are now a part of the family of God. So Peter, this Jewish fisherman, who before would have never thought Gentiles would be a part of the covenant family of God, is now writing a letter to them to strengthen and encourage them, reminding them that they have been chosen and that they have been brought into God's family. And they're not chosen as an afterthought, but they're chosen according to God's foreknowledge. So before the foundation of the world, these believers were loved by God in Christ. God did not react to the Jews rejecting him and think, I guess I need to go find a different people to save. Now, this has been the plan from all of eternity. That the triune God would choose a people, save them, and make them holy as he is holy. We see this triune God at work in verse 2. We see the choosing is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God's choosing of his people is done through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. He's opening the eyes of our hearts so that we might know and believe the gospel. And this initial sanctifying work of the Spirit leads to this receiving of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, of being sprinkled with his blood. That phrase, sprinkling with his blood, that's 
covenant language. That's how Israel entered covenant with God at Sinai. Moses sprinkles blood on the people as they enter in this covenant. We now in the new covenant then have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Our sins have been atoned for. We have been washed clean by his blood. So again, Peter, the one who rebuked Christ and said that he would never be put to death, now he praises God for the salvation that is found in his death and resurrection. And these Gentiles who were once not a people have now been chosen by God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and sprinkled with the blood of Christ. They are now a part of the covenant family of God. It also describes these believers as elect exiles of the dispersion. We see here why it's so important then for Peter to remind these people that they are now God's people. They are chosen by him and sanctified by him. Because though they are God's people, they are a scattered people. They're strangers and aliens. You know, understanding these descriptions is really key to understanding this book. As one commentator that I was reading put it, Peter is writing a traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims. He's wanting to remind them that their hope cannot be anchored here, but it must be anchored in their heavenly home. Dispersion, I think, really has a kind of a double purpose here. You know, the original readers, it could possibly address or describe an actual sense of being dispersed or exiled from where they're from. But I think second, maybe a little more practical to us, it's, it's really used metaphorically in interpreting the experience of those chosen by God to be a part of his kingdom. You know, this is one of the realities of being chosen by God to be a member of his family that on earth we live as exiles that this is not our true home that this is not where we put our hope in well this then leads us this introduction that's going to lead us into the body of our text where he's going to start building on this idea so what does Peter then have to tell these exiles who have been chosen by God. Well, first, in verses 3 through 5, we see the founder and the protector of our hope. So Peter's going to begin right off by praising God. The long-awaited redemption that Jews like Peter would have spent time praying for, they would have spent their time looking for, has finally come. And Peter follows this with the reason that we are to bless God. Look at verse 3. We see that God is the founder of our hope because he has, been, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Without him, you remain dead in your sin. But because of his great mercy, he has now acted on your behalf. You were dead, but he made you alive. He is the founder of our new life. And this new life that none of us deserve and not one of us could create or manifest on our own, God and his mercy bestowed onto us. Is that not reason enough right there to praise him? 
But there's more. He goes on. He's not just the founder of some generic dead hope. Now it's a living hope that is indestructible. It's living because our hope is in Christ. Christ is not still dead. He is alive. Oh, Peter knows what it's like to have a hope that is misplaced. You know, Peter thought that his hope was in the right place before the crucifixion. It was in Christ, but it was in his earthly reign. He was ready for him to kick the Romans out, to set up his kingdom here on earth. Oh, but then Jesus died. And Peter's hope at the time died with him. Peter had given up everything to follow Jesus. That was supposed to be his ticket. At the end of the Gospels, you see a man who is in deep despair because his hope is gone. And this man whom he had loved, yet had denied three times, is now laying in a grave. But then Sunday came. And Peter went to the tomb and he found it empty. And then Christ himself appears to him and the other disciples. And we see from there on their lives change forever. Oh, now the resurrection means everything for Peter. Because our hope is now alive. He has been raised from the dead. So we not only have been born again to a living hope because of the resurrection, but we have been born again to an inheritance. And this inheritance, it says, is imperishable. It's eternal. It's one that is undefiled. It's perfect. And it's one that is unfading. It never gets old and it never wears out. It's kept in heaven for you meaning nothing on earth can touch it, destroy it, or even compare with it. Now, Peter even has to use negative descriptions here, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, because I don't think our minds can fully even comprehend the goodness of this inheritance. You know, with Old Testament Israel, their inheritance was the land of Canaan. This is what helped, helped them continue wandering in the wilderness. In the book of Revelation, we see God's people's inheritance is this new earth that is coming down. It's coming down to be among men. But who is it that's in the midst of this city? It is Christ himself, who is our perfect, uncorruptible inheritance. We see in verse 5 that not only is our inheritance kept in heaven by God, but we too are also protected by this same power that keeps our inheritance. You know, we wouldn't have much hope of our inheritance if we too were not protected by God, if we could somehow lose it or be destroyed before we got there. But no, Peter says, God's same power that guards and keeps that inheritance, by faith guards and keeps you. And it will guard you all the way until the end. till the perfect one comes. When Christ, our salvation, appears. So friends, right here in these first three verses, we see clearly the authority and supremacy of our God. That he is 
founded our hope, because he has caused us to be born again, that he is the source of our hope, that Jesus Christ is our salvation, our inheritance, and that he is the protector of our hope because he guards and protects us all the way to the end. So I wonder when, when life gets hard, you know, when you have another fight with your wife, when your kids continue to rebel and disobey, when another job promotion passes you by, is your hope that things will eventually just get better? That things will eventually just get less hard? It might get a little bit easier. You know, and God's kindness, for some of you, that may happen. But for others, that might not. In fact, things might even get harder for some of us. You know, and if our hope is in that things might get better or that things might get easier, friends, and our hope is in this world. And that will always lead us to disappointment. But if our hope is in Christ and his resurrection, the hope that is alive, that is imperishable and undefiled, friends, our hope cannot be diminished. We can now have joy in the midst of those those hard circumstances because our hope is in Christ. We have a sure promise here that God will protect us until we receive this hope. And friend, again, if you're here and you're not a Christian, again, I ask, where's your hope? When life goes from easy to hard or good to bad, what are you hoping in? Because listen, if it's not Christ, the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesians, then you have no hope. But the good news is, is that Christ has died for all men. And all who trust in him will be sanctified by his spirit will be sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ and given new life. They will be born again to a living hope in the resurrection of Christ. And friend, you can trust him today. You can have this living hope that God gives to dead sinners today. You know, Romans 10.4 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So listen, it may be intimidating, but if you have questions about this, please come and grab me. Grab one of the other guys that will be up here later or whoever brought you. Ask them about these things. Talk to them. We would love to talk to you about this. Well, this leads us then into our second point in the text. That our hope in Christ not only helps us endure suffering, but that we can suffer with joy. Peter starts out in verse 6 by saying, In this you rejoice. So he's referring here to what we just saw, that our living hope that is founded by God and rooted in the resurrected Christ, that this hope produces joy for believers. And Peter's going to give us four reasons why we can have joy in the midst of trials. First, 
our hope points us beyond our trials. He says here that though for a little while, it's just a little while, our trials will come to an end. It may happen in this life, or maybe it will be in the life to come. But regardless, they are temporary. And that is unlike our hope that is in Christ that will last forever. Well, second, our trials strengthen our faith. We've already seen that by faith, God will protect us to the end. So when trials come, they're not there to destroy us. In fact, according to that promise, they can't destroy us. Instead, they are for our faith to endure. And for it to endure, it must be tested. It says like precious gold that passes through fire, our faith must be tested. And these trials, they should not surprise us. Christ told us in the Gospels that the world has hated him, and so it will hate us too. So instead, then, we should rejoice in trials because they are meant to strengthen us. It is a gift from God. Do you all view your trials that way, that this is God's gift to you to strengthen your faith? Third, these trials bring about reward. Peter says these various trials will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter mentions again in chapter 5 that when Christ appears, we will receive the unfading crown of glory. Our suffering for Christ does not go unnoticed. Jesus sees it. And when he returns, he doesn't just put an end to our suffering. But he rewards those who have endured to the end. But ultimately, it's not about us, is it? For any glory that we receive is really Christ's glory. Which is the fourth reason we can have joy in suffering. It's because it results in praise and glory and honor for Christ. Paul makes this clear in 2 Thessalonians. He says, When Christ returns, he will be glorified in us, and we will be glorified in him. So any crown of glory that we might receive at the coming of Christ, brothers and sisters, we will joyfully throw down at his feet to worship our resurrected Savior. So Peter wants these believers and us to know that The suffering we face, that it is not meaningless because it helps us endure. It strengthens our faith. It does bring about reward, but most importantly, it brings glory to Christ. And then Peter moves on here in verse 8 to reflect on the love then of these suffering saints, the love that they have for Christ. And he progresses from past to present to future. He says, though you have not seen him in the past, you love him. Though you do not now see him in the present, you believe in him. And you are filled with joy now in the present because of the future coming of Christ in which you will receive your salvation. 
I think this is really interesting coming from one who has seen Jesus, who could call to mind actual images of him teaching, working miracles, calming storms, walking on water. Yet Peter knows that those things are not what join him to Christ. That that same spirit that opened his eyes to the truth of the gospel and united him to Christ has done the same for us. Do you ever think that maybe if you could have just seen Jesus, it'd be a little bit easier to have faith? If you could have been like Thomas and just you know, touch the holes in his hands and his sides. Oh man, then you could really endure trials. Peter wants to make clear that that is not why we have faith. Because our faith, like we saw earlier, is from God. So when Peter confessed Christ as the Son of God, what did Jesus say? Oh, you confess this because you have seen me. No, that's not what he said. Now, Jesus answered him, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has shown you this. So we have not seen Jesus, and we do not now see him, but we will see him. This future hope of seeing the risen Christ is why Peter says that now in the present we rejoice with an expressible joy. You know, if you're thinking like, man, I just don't have that kind of joy, then again, I ask, where is your hope placed? Is it in your circumstances? Is it in improving the things around you? Or is it in the resurrection? In the sure fact that Christ is coming again that our eyes will behold the glory of our Savior. Because friends, if it's not there, it is in this world and it is hopeless. Well, Peter then concludes with our third point this afternoon. I think he gives us some helpful application as well. And our third point is that our hope is an old hope. And it's promised from the beginning And it's fulfilled in Christ. Peter points to the scriptures. He says that all of scriptures point to the suffering of Christ, which leads to glory. You know, beginning in Genesis 3 and proceeding all throughout the Old Testament, we have prophecies and types and shadows, all pointing to the coming of the Savior and of his eventual suffering and subsequent glory. Look in verse 11. Who does Peter say are giving these prophecies? It's Christ himself. Christ is showing them how he would come, how he must suffer, how he would be glorified. And this was not ultimately for their benefit, but for ours. And this mystery of the suffering of the Son of God for the salvation of a rebellious and sinful people is so profound, it says the angels in heaven long to peer into it. So then I think Peter gives us this wonderful application. 
Yes, so we have not seen Christ. We don't currently see Christ. Look at what he's given us. He has given us his word that are full of the promises of our redemption. And this promise was not made by men, but by God himself through Christ, the very word of God. We have the whole story laid out for us in his word. Peter says that we are better off than the greatest of the prophets. Even Isaiah, who had a vision of the throne room of God. In that moment, Isaiah was not serving himself but us. And we have, believe it or not, an even clearer picture of the hope of God and the glory that will come at the revelation of Christ. So again, saints, I wonder, do you believe that? When you open up your scriptures, do you see that this is the very hope of God that we get to read about and know and treasure? You know, if you've listened today in these words of Peter and you find yourself joyless and hopeless, why might that be? Now, let me be clear, I don't, Jeff even mentioned this earlier, I'm not saying that you have to have this feeling of happiness. We don't have to be happy, clappy people all the time. Life can be difficult. Suffering is hard. So Peter's not telling these Christians to just be happy. Because that's not the reality of life. Hard things happen that are really painful and sad. But what Peter is forcing these Christians to do and forcing us to do is to lift our eyes off of our circumstances and put them on Christ. To remember that Christ has suffered on our behalf. And Christ tells us that we will share in his sufferings. Again, we saw it, John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me first. A servant is not greater than his master. If the world persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Peter says later in chapter 4, don't be surprised at your trials as though something strange were happening to you. But instead, we should rejoice that we share in Christ's suffering. Because if we share in his suffering, we will also share in his glory. Paul says in Romans 6, verse 5, if we have been united to Christ in a death like his, that we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So brothers and sisters, is this where your hope is at? Because it must be there. It must be in Christ and his resurrection. Because like Paul said, if the resurrection didn't happen, then we are most to be pitied. But the good news is that it did happen. Christ did raise from the dead. That he did ascend to the Father. And he sent his helper to God's church. We have now been united to him by the same spirit that we know for a fact 
that we will see Christ's face at his revelation. So then again, I ask, where is your hope? Is it in your circumstances? Is it in life will get better? Your marriage will improve. There will be peace in your home. Is it in your career, financial freedom, healthy retirement? Friends, none of these things are bad in and of themselves, but they're insufficient to place your hope in. If your hope is placed in the things of this world, then your joy will be diminished and your usefulness for the gospel's sake will be diminished. And that there is only one sufficient place for our hope. And that's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing in this life can diminish that. Nothing can take it away from us. Because it is a reality that is in heaven being guarded for you. So friends, if your hope is in the resurrection, oh, then you can now joyfully throw yourself into life knowing that there will be disappointments, there will be hurts, there will be suffering and persecution, oh, yet that none of those things can touch your hope, which is imperishable and undefiled, kept in heaven for you. And that that hope will be revealed at the coming of Christ. Oh, the, hope gives, the hope of the resurrection gives us joy now, for we know that since Christ is raised, we too will be raised to glory. So Christian, has your hope been in the wrong place? Are you being robbed of joy by the trials of life? Friend, turn back to Christ. Turn back to his word. Treasure the promises that he has made us in Christ. Place your hope in the resurrection. Turn to the scriptures which proclaim over and over the victory that Christ has had over the enemy. Because friends, our hope must be in the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we might joyfully endure to the end to see our Savior face to face.